Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Deutsche Bank has been having a terrible year, and it has just gotten worse. Joining us to discuss is Lionel Ron. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Let's talk about what happened. Officials raided Deutsche Bank offices. What were they looking for? Why now? And how much lower can these shares go? Um, well, I mean, they can always go a lot lower, as we've seen over the past uh, few years. Uh, in terms of what they were looking for and why now, I mean... Uh, look, there's a lot we don't know, but the fact is this this seems to be linked to the uh, the Panama Papers uh, scandal, the leaks a couple of years ago, a huge uh, wad of documents detailing offshore accounts and assets, you know, squirreled away, uh, and seems to have caught up with Deutsche Bank and a couple of uh, unnamed employees who seem to be part of the part of the probe. So I guess. One more, one more thing to worry about on a long list of things to worry about. Lionel, the shares of Deutsche Bank, they're lower by more than 5%. They've lost more than 50% of their value this year. And just earlier today, as Lisa was referencing, six different Deutsche Bank properties were searched by police. Police vehicles lined up outside of Deutsche Bank's central Frankfurt headquarters. And according to a person who's familiar with the matter, one of the two people being probed by Frankfurt prosecutors in the money laundering investigations works in the bank's anti-financial crime section. <laughs> yeah, uh, and look, bigger picture is, right, money laundering, as we've seen at the Danske Bank scandal, this, you know, money laundering is not something that's restricted to one bank or unique to one bank. And sadly, even banks that say they have the right controls often fail at the hurdle. I I, I just think the bigger picture goes beyond the sort of you know, the, the shock and awe of this investigation. You know, Deutsche Bank is a bank that has had uh, a lot of problems to do with its compliance and its controls even before this. It's the reason why it failed the US stress test. It's the, it's the reason why it had a bunch of fines. It's part of the reason why it's lost money for three years in a row. I think even if you even if you didn't know about today's probe, you would really have reason to worry about the simple operational control at this institution. It's a, it's a serious concern. Who is to blame for the institutional lapses that seem to be coming up again and again here at Deutsche Bank? So I think that's not wishing to point the finger at any one in particular, but you really have to question the board's uh, the board's behavior, the, the board's way of acting over the past couple of years. We had the previous CEO, John Cryan, do a, do a pretty good job of at least trying to get the bank to survive in the face of fines and just trying to adapt to the post-crisis world. And he did he did did actually succeed in raising capital at the bank. And he was pushed out in a very messy, very hasty way earlier this year. And the new CEO seems to not be getting a handle on things at all. And there's now talk of a whole new round of executives being uh, pushed out. And I think at some point, if, if this keeps getting worse, people are going to have to look at the board and think, what's happening? Why is the chairman still here? Why is the board the way it is? This clearly has got to stop, but the accountability goes way beyond the CEO and the current management. Lionel, does this create operational paralysis at an institution such as Deutsche Bank? 
I think it's worse than paralysis. It's, it's, it just seems like it's completely disorderly. If you think about it, wouldn't it be worth a bit of paralysis just to control things? If, if this is a control failure, wouldn't it be worth spending all you've got to at least draw a line under all this? Think of all of the trading mishaps that every year there's a risk management blow up. They try and protect against risk, but also make money and it doesn't work. Well, yeah, the- Lena, though, I mean, to be fair, right? I- all banks are involved in different mixes of businesses and some are more risk prone than others, right? I mean, just let's get that out there. I mean, if you're dealing with sort of, uh, private wealth, for example, you have to be really careful not to be dealing with tax evasion or money laundering or other things like that. Correspondence, banking, similar uh, risk issues here. So is Deutsche Bank unique in some of its transgressions or is this just the mix of businesses that it's got itself in are higher risk and perhaps they didn't amp up the uh, risk management as much as they should have. Let me put it this way. We, we, there is no secret to Deutsche Bank's issues. It has a gigantic balance sheet. It is primarily exposed to investment banking. But given that we have been in this downward spiral since 2015, do you not think that this goes beyond some kind of sectoral issue? Isn't it time that there was a question made about who is controlling this bank and what the operational control is? I genuinely don't see how the current situation where you have the old CEO pushed out in favor of a new CEO in a completely messy way, but the board remains unchanged, and the current situation where you find the rate is one thing, but forget even the rate. There are reports coming out that the CEO is considering replacing the head of regulation, the head of US banking, and the head of the investment bank potentially all in one go. And I just think that tells you that there is a complete lack of understanding of how to get control, how to get a grip on this. And I think this goes way beyond saying, well, this is the business of banking. That's that. That's my view. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Lionel Laurent is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He joins us from London speaking about Deutsche Bank and the raid that was initiated today on their Frankfurt headquarters. Shares of Deutsche Bank are lower by 5%, and as we mentioned, they are lower by more than 50% so far this year. I want to bring in our own legal expert here, June Grosso, a legal analyst and co-host of Bloomberg Law, to tell us more about this rather extraordinary turn of events. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what the plea deal with Michael Cohen would involve and why does pleading guilty to lying to the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2017, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because of the significance of this to the Mueller investigation. When Michael Cohen pleaded earlier this year to federal charges. That was not that was at the Southern District of New York. It was not related to the Mueller investigation. In fact, Mueller had handed off Michael Cohen, so to speak, to the Southern District. So everyone assumed that, oh, he has nothing to contribute to the Mueller investigation. Then you remember that his attorney, Lanny Davis, went on TV several times and talked to different outlets and said he has a lot to give here. It was almost as a plea to the special counsel, talk to Michael Cohen because we want to we want a deal. Michael Cohen's other uh, plea, there was no deal involved, which was sort of shocking to most lawyers. Why make a plea when you don't have a deal? This is now a cooperation agreement with the special counsel. He's pleading to new charges, and it's about the statements that he made. And you heard 
President Trump refer to a refer to that statement that Michael Cohen made? Well, Michael Cohen is now saying that was a lie. We didn't end negotiations for the Russia tower in Moscow in January. Yeah. They continued until June when he was the presumptive GOP nominee. Yeah, well, let's let's find out more about that Russia deal that President Trump said everybody knew about. Let's bring in Larry Liebert, uh, who is uh, in Washington, D.C. for Bloomberg News. Larry, thank you so much for being with us. Can you give us a sense of what this Moscow property deal was and how it's relevant to this whole ongoing discussion of uh, conspiracy or uh, collusion? Uh, I think, first of all, there's been a lot of talk that, that the Mueller probe will Peter out in regard to the president. You know, he doesn't really have anything direct on the president. He's about to close shop. Uh, not at all, this suggests. Uh, and it, and uh, the plea here uh, indicates uh, that there was an effort to cover up or at least minimize this talk of a, a Trump Tower in Moscow uh, as an issue that was indeed settled in January when, in fact, it was June. And, uh, you know, in his uh, uh, now uh, uh, erroneous, uh, de- deceptive testimony to Congress, uh, Cohn had made a big point that we stopped talking about this way before the Iowa caucuses or any of the primaries. Uh, today he's saying, no, the talks continue. Now, the president shrugged it off. He said uh, that, first of all, that Cohn is a liar, but secondly, that uh, there was nothing wrong about pursuing a deal. Uh, a, but Mueller may have different ideas on that in terms of the reasons, the incentives, the motives to collude with Russia. June Grasso, the president also during this uh, impromptu news conference said that one of the reasons why the conversations continued about the tower, the real estate project in Russia, is he did not know, obviously, the outcome of the U.S. election and that by foregoing the possibility of a business deal, he would be hurting his business. It's not about the deal. It's about what was said about the deal and what the intent was and what went on about the deal. So it's not the deal itself. That's sort of a diversion. Yeah, he could make a deal. It's a business. But in, Michael, the information for Cohen's plea, what he says, and this really goes to the heart of what you're asking, he said that he made false statements to minimize the links between the Moscow project and individual one. That's President Trump, to give the false impression that the Moscow project ended before the Iowa caucus, that's the first primary, and to limit, in the hopes of limiting the ongoing Russia investigation. That's the key here, the hopes of limiting. And also for all the people who ask about, you know, people say, are speculating about what is President Trump's connection to Soviet President Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin. In this information, Cohen agreed to travel to Russia, and they mention that the conversations that were had between the press secretary for President Putin. He received a response from the Office of Russian Official One, the press secretary for the president of Russia. So, and then there was an email where he said, it's about the president of Russia. They call today. So behind this is all the connections to Vladimir Putin. All right, Larry, can we take a step back and just talk about what you kind of uh, initially said, which is any signs that Robert Mueller was winding down his investigation uh, are probably misplaced, and this sort of shows that they're very deep in it. So 
What have we learned about the stage of the investigation? When we'll get a final report? And, you know, how much does this change the calculus about whether this ultimately does go back to President Trump and in some way imperil his presidency? Because, right, I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day what everybody is wondering. Well, we haven't heard any firm uh, guidance that, uh, from sources that suggest uh, that there's been a change in uh, our early reporting that uh, Mueller was closing in on some some of his major conclusions. Uh, but, uh, you know, even if he issues conclusions, he's uh, set uh, in the course for prosecutions, for uh, inquiries, uh, not only by his office, but, but by other U.S. attorneys that may go on for a good while and, and, and trials as well. So uh, this thing isn't ending in any case. Uh, and the, un- uh, the ultimate question uh, in part is how strongly uh, he condemns the president and those around him, uh, even if he finds this has been the general view that you can't I- indict a sitting president. So uh, the, the plot is thickening now that we're past the elections, uh, and we'll see a lot more happening, but exactly the pace and exactly how uh, close to the president it gets, uh, you know, we don't yet know. But this is a clue that it's not all over yet. June Grasso, you want to talk about timing. I do, because the timing of this is important and, you might say, peculiar. Remember that President Trump submitted answers under oath to the special counsel's office. And now he's locked into those answers. And now all of a sudden we have the Cohen plea, which contradicts perhaps, and we would say probably contradicts, those answers. So the timing is really unusual. Also, the Manafort deal falling apart on Monday because of information the special counsel has. The timing is really important, and the the thing that President Trump is locked into those answers. Really interesting, and uh, we will continue to tap both of you uh, for more insight as this develops. June Grasso, legal analyst and co-host of Bloomberg Law. Larry Liebert, national security editor for Bloomberg, coming to us also from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for being with us. Our guest is the Honorable Vic Fideli. He is the finance minister of Ontario. Ontario, one of 13 provinces and territories of Canada, and it is home to the largest manufacturing segment of the Canadian economy. More than 50% of manufacturing happens in Ontario. Minister, thank you very much for being here. Tell us currently, what are the finances and the economic health of Ontario? Well, I can say that uh, Ontario, uh, while we had a uh, a previous government in power for 15 years, our conservative government has now uh, been in for five months. And uh, the the first thing that we did was begin with efficiencies. And we found $3.2 billion worth of efficiencies in the last 11 weeks and returned $2.7 billion back to individuals, families and uh, businesses. So Ontario is back and we're open for business. I'm just wondering, a lot of people from the U.S., when they think about Ontario right now, hear about what we've heard about the Toronto housing market. How much is this on your radar and and play into your day-to-day, just the incredible surge in pricing? 
Well, we ended up with a, what we'll call a soft landing. Two things happened. Over the last year, we put a foreign investment tax that the previous government put in, uh, and that helped to uh, slow down the market. And the federal government uh, changed the mortgage uh, uh, availability rules in January, so that also so, uh, affected the market. So between the two of them, it brought us in for a, a softer landing, so we didn't see any kind of a bubble at all. Uh, and now, uh, in our fall economic statement, uh, we just announced that we will remove rent control for new uh, developments. So it's opened up. The, the business community is now ready to invest because they can build and know that they've got a, a, growing, uh, a growing return. Now, rent control will stay for those uh, existing uh, uh, owners uh, or, or renters. Now, as I mentioned, Ontario is Canada's leading manufacturing province, accounting for more than 50% of total manufacturing shipments. That means a relationship with the state of Michigan. Can you tell us what trade confrontations and conciliations between the United States and Canada have meant for the province of Ontario? Well, I can tell you that our premier, uh, Doug Ford, has been talking to uh, all of the governors from the 19 states where we are number one trading partner, and I think it's six states where we're the number two trading partner, or nine other states where we're the number two trading partner. Uh, and you'll find Premier Ford, he's a business person, and he's, he's not an ideologue. It's not about being on the right or the left to him. It's all about pragmatism. If it's the right thing to do, let's do it. Now, manufacturing, although we uh, do account for 50%, it is really a 12% of uh, our economy in Ontario. FinTech and financial services are 9%. Agriculture, while it's a, a smaller percentage, is still a huge employer, one of the largest employers in the province as well. So we have a, a truly a diversified economy right across uh, the province of Ontario. We, we do about $3 billion worth of movies uh, are filmed in Toronto and further north. I live about four hours north of Toronto where there's two feet of snow today. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we do a lot of uh, Hallmark uh, Christmas movies uh, that are filmed, a tremendous amount of uh, film activity as well. I'm just wondering also about cannabis legalization yeah. in uh, in Canada. I'm just wondering whether you've accounted for much higher revenues in taxes or anything else from the legalization of cannabis. You know, that's an excellent question. Uh, and what we decided to do, uh, so that this is not a tax revenue play for the province of Ontario. It's unlike the other, we call them at home sin taxes, uh, alcohol and tobacco that generally see an increase at budget uh, in the budgets. This is not going to happen. This is all about, uh, this was fe federally reg regulated. So it's a law that was brought in by the federal government right across Canada. We opted to make our price point low so that we can, uh, first of all, it's all about the safety of our children, the safety on our roads, and uh, crushing the illegal market. So that's really where we are. So it's not about a financial play. We're not going to make money at this in the first year or the second year at all. We're returning $40 million to the municipalities to help them with, uh, with uh, the, the rollout of cannabis. Just real quick, 20 seconds here. I'm wondering how much Toronto and the Ontario region has benefited from the crackdown on immigration in the United States, uh, given the fact that, that you've been much more open. It's quite interesting. We, we were at about 1.8% of growth. Uh, we'll probably uh, hit about 1.5% this year. So we've had a huge influx. More than 200,000 people have come into the province of Ontario. And uh, this we're, we're uh, encouraging this to happen. We, we look forward to it. And there 
they're absolutely uh, the employees of the future. Thank you so much for being with us. That is uh, Ontario Finance Minister, the Honourable Vic Fideli, talking about all things Canada as well as Ontario. Pim, when I was 14, I did some things. I was into uh, art and dance. I was not building robotic arms in my bedroom, but our next guest was. You didn't use your Lego set for that? (laughs) <laughs> this, our next guest went beyond Lego sets. Uh, Easton LaChapelle joins us now. He's founder of Unlimited Tomorrow, which is based in Colorado, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So you're 23 and you made your first prosthetic arm when you were 14. What inspired you to do that? Yeah, so I grew up in a very small town in Colorado named Mancus. Uh, there was a population of about 1,200 people. My graduating class in high school was 23 kids. So you can imagine it was very limited resources. And that really made me excited. And I started learning outside my school. I would run home, take things apart. I loved curiosity and tinkering. And I came up with an idea to make a robotic hand and piece together Legos, fishing line, plastic supports, Legos to piece it all together and turn this idea into reality. Um, a couple years after that, I started advancing these designs using 3D printing, making four robotic arms. And I met a small girl at a science fair that had an $80,000 prosthetic limb that was simpler than what I was creating for a couple hundred dollars out of my bedroom. And that was my aha moment. Tell us about how you met Tony Robbins, who is a founding partner of your company, and how did you demonstrate the ability to custom make prosthetics based on 3D scan technology? Well, it was, uh, it was a busy year when I was 17 years old. I was, uh, I was doing an internship at NASA. I started uh, creating these, these arms and started getting national media attention. I was traveling around the world doing talks and speeches. And I was invited to give a TED Talk in Denver. And uh, that was a really big milestone for me. That's actually how Tony Robbins, he, he saw this TED Talk. He gave me a call one day pretty much and said, I, I help people around the world psychologically and I would love to help them physically. Let's partner together to make this a reality. And this is when I was just about to graduate from high school. I was 17 years old. Right when I turned 18, we partnered together to form Unlimited Tomorrow. And uh, since then, we've been refining the technology. This was almost four years ago now. And uh, and we just recently, about two years ago, uh, we partnered with Microsoft, and they helped create the first prosthetic device for a small 10-year-old girl named Momo. And uh, that really set the bar for us. So we sent scanners down to her in Florida. We scanned her arm that she's missing uh, and her other arm, uh, her full arm. And we used that data to make a mere image. Uh, We included fingernails, custom skin tone, uh, incorporated a lot of technology into this, and it really highlights the the enabling technology, which is 3D printing for this technology. Is it, I just want to know a little bit more about Unlimited Tomorrow, which can create these advanced prosthetics that even match the skin tone for about 20% of the cost of the available uh, prosthetics that are comparable out there. Are you designing the prosthetics? Do you work with designers? What sort of uh, the sort of function here that Unlimited Tomorrow plays? Yeah, that's a great question. When I first started looking into this industry, there's a, I saw there's a lot of problems. There's, it's kind of a scattered uh, kind of market where prosthetic manufacturers upcharge and uh, sell to clinicians. They then sell to the amputee. It's an insurance game. And, and to the end user, it's a really inefficient, expensive process that can take months on end. And so we really designed this from the ground up. We design every aspect from the software to custom electronics, all the mechanics. We do all that in-house. And we've also introduced a new business model, which is going directly to the consumer. And so we cut out all 
all these middlemen that cause a lot of inefficiencies and cost. And we find that we can produce a better result that has increased functionality. It weighs less. It looks better um, within a matter of days versus months and for about five to $10,000 versus about $80,000. And so we've really hit the bar on, on a lot of these problems. How are you raising money in order to keep the company afloat and expand manufacturing? So early on, I, I made a I made a conscious decision to really turn to the people. You know, Limited Tomorrow, we we affect people's lives around the world, and we're a people business powered by people. Uh, so we turn to crowdfunding, and crowdfunding is a perfect application for for what we're doing. It's involving cutting edge technology, uh, very humanitarian, philanthropic, you know, mission behind this, and we're doing it in new ways. Uh, early this year, we went through equity crowdfunding, which allows for accredited and unaccredited investors to invest in the company. Uh, we ended up raising 1.6 million in about 30 days with 1,200 investors, which actually broke records in, in, in equity crowdfunding world. Uh, so this is this is one step of, of what we're doing. Uh, today, about a couple weeks ago, we launched an, uh, a new Indiegogo campaign, uh, which is more of a standard uh, crowdfunding campaign that you see on Kickstarter Indiegogo. And the goal is to raise money to be able to donate the first 100 devices to 100 amazing amputees around the world, a lot of children and adults. We're, we call the campaign 100 Tomorrows. And as of right now, we have about 67 devices of the 100 devices already raised, so about $440,000. Uh, so we're, we're working to meet the $500,000 goal and really start, uh, start scaling from here. I find it really compelling when you start talking about the inefficiencies built into the whole prosthetics world. And I'm wondering whether during your explorations and, and the evolution of this business, you've seen other avenues or other aspects of the healthcare industry that you think some of the 3D printing and the technology will, could be applied to. Absolutely. I mean, there's countless examples. Um, a lot of them are physical medical devices uh, and really comes back to the philosophy of Unlimited Tomorrow. It's really augmenting the human body. We want to use technology to unlock someone's full potential. So this could be giving a child a prosthetic limb that they go to school very confident. They can get past all these you know, physical limitations of just everyday life. Uh, it could also mean that you know someone who's paralyzed. And uh, what are your options? It's either a wheelchair or a couple other devices out there for rehabilitation. Uh, we look at this technology technology and, and some of the technology that we've patented and developed, and we can easily uh, accommodate for exoskeletons and other assistive devices, so essentially robotic pair of legs. And it's a very similar process and in industry with the, with prosthetics that it's a very expensive, you know, $100,000 device. It's out of reach for you know the people who really need to use it, um, but it's not it's not extreme. It, it doesn't need to cost hundred thousand dollars. We can produce it for far less, and by using three D printing and new manufacturing techniques, uh, we can very we can be very slim and uh, you know be a startup and compete with this large medical world. Well, that competition obviously takes a lot of courage, and you've shown that by building this company from scratch. Yep. What are the challenges that you face to get people aware that this is an op? an option for them rather than to go in a more traditional prosthetic direction. Well, we actually haven't had any any type of problem. We actually get emails, probably hundreds of emails a day from people around the world, um, from yeah, amazing direct directly from people. Right, right, and and it's it's a known problem, especially if you are on the other side of it, right? You know, we you know if we're sitting here, we've all seen people that are missing limbs, but you don't really know the process of what it takes to you know if you were 
you know, to get run over and, and had an injury or, or has a, have a disease and you have, you, you had to have your arm amputated, you wouldn't really, a normal person wouldn't know that whole process. So that's part of my job is to also educate, you know, there's over 30 million amputees worldwide, and only 5% of them have access to prosthetic devices. And that's a big problem. Uh, and not a lot of people realize that. And so part of this is educating, you know, part of this is, is creating a model that they can actually reach out and, and, uh, you know, get a device through us very easily, which is what we're solving with this new business model and technology. We actually, if you were to approach us today, we send you a 3D scanner to, so you can actually scan yourself in the comfort of your own home. We get that data uh, remotely. We can process that. We 3D print it and, uh, and you're off to the races. It's a, it's a really amazing process. Thanks very much for sharing the story with us. Easton LaChapelle, he is the founder of Unlimited Tomorrow. They are based in Colorado. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.